Revealing Voices, the Mental Health Podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. It's episode 12. It is. We've had a wonderful day here. If uh, you don't know this because you're hearing this at a different time than our episode 11, but uh, we've had a marathon recording session today. We have. We're, we're four months in now, approximately, to the recording process, and we said, you know what? Let's go unedited. Hey, it's time to fly cut those wings and fly yes <laughs> and metaphor doesn't work it, yeah it fell flat your, your episode went so well you're like we're doing the next one today today let's roll we got it going yes yes you took a little nap i ate some lunch watched the world cup mm-hmm. here we go who's uh winning there portugal uh portugal uh and Uruguay are tied as we speak. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, today we're going to have Eric as our featured guest. Um, we want to uh, first mention that uh, we responded, gotten a number of responses from our question, what does healing mean to you? And uh, we'd like to feature a couple of those or a few of those and uh, tell you who who submitted them. Yeah, uh, you, you asked this via Facebook Messenger. That's right. I wrote to several of my friends who uh, I communicate with through Facebook Messenger, yeah. and they're faithful to respond. There's like 30 of them here, I think. Yeah, three pages worth. And I think there are others that I don't uh, I don't have in my, in my, that I didn't save in this file. Yeah. And just to remind our listeners, on revealingvoices.com, we have an area called What Does Healing Mean to You? And there's a section there where you can write to us, and then we can publish uh, as almost like a guest blog on the Revealing Voices page. So as we uh, kind of work through these, we may be asking these folks to write uh, straight onto the onto the website. Yep. Yeah. So one of our responses came from Laura Pagliano of Baltimore, Maryland. Laura is the administrator for a very popular um, advocacy page for mental illness recovery. Uh, and this, uh, or mental Ill- illness advocacy, um, she writes this, Healing from mental illness means reluctant acceptance of the many changes and limitations medicine and time, and time with medicine. Medically stable is the key to healing. Acceptance is the key to stability. Mm-hmm. Very nice. <clears throat> Laura has a son who uh, died by suicide, and she is uh, a strong advocate for uh, parents' rights in attempting to prevent their children from taking 
uh, unreasonable risks mm -hmm. that, would, that would potentially harm them or others. Yes. Number two. I have another. Would you like me to share it? Go for it, <laughs> okay. yeah. Okay. Um, this comes from Amanda Irene Schultz, one of our listeners here in Columbus, Indiana. Maybe healing means relief. Relief that someone is taking my problem seriously and wants to help me. Relief that just because it's all in my head doesn't mean it isn't real. Relief that I'll start to feel better soon. Maybe not right away, but I'm headed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Very hopeful meaning of, of healing. Not entirely a cure, but pointed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Very nice. <clears throat> I have a couple also. Go right ahead. The first one I'll read is from a good friend, Brandon Andrus. Brandon has his own podcast, kind of a pioneer here in Columbus and helped inspire us to, to do ours. His podcast is called Outside the Walls, and he's been doing that for a couple of years, probably has about 40 episodes, shorter, about 15 minutes. Uh, Brandon does a great job. So here, here is Brandon's response. Ultimately, healing is about shalom. It is a movement, always and infinitely, toward union and communion with God that restores our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls, and then works its way out into our relationship and into our communities, bringing healthy healing and reconciliation. Brandon is, a, is an excellent teacher, uh, incredibly scholarly. He actually was one of the main elders at the living room when I first started going there. And I was a part of a men's confession group with Brandon that really helped me open up in uh, ministry and to others and in a lot of ways helped pave the way for uh, the transparency I could have in Faithful Friends Ministry. Great. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, thank you, Brandon. The other one, this is from Jennifer Dockey. Dockey, yes. I don't know Jennifer. She was a uh, uh, classmate of mine. She was a, a grade below me, but she was a tennis player and uh -huh. has a really sharp wit. Yeah, this is, this is funny. Here we go. Healing is when it's just okay. You don't go to the grocery, embarrassed with your head down, comparing yourself to others. You just go to the grocery. You don't want to get home from work to hide, cry, and sneak into bed. You just go home. You don't dread the next day worrying that people will find out you're a failure. You just go to work, and what's supposed to happen just happen. Healing is when your mind gives you the strength to fight the good fight, to do what you have to do to make things right for yourself, the strength to not let insecurities take over your abilities. I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> thanks, Jennifer, and thanks for all of the uh, uh, those of you who who wrote in. We may feature more of these as uh, our episodes go along. Yeah, and uh, and one last thing, Tony, you do a great job of reaching out to people, um, doing kind of like marketing promotion type stuff for the show. I uh, tend to stay in the trenches with the uh, podcast, uh, with editing, that yep. sort of stuff. 
And I got to say, doing these unedited versions is going to save me a lot of time yep. in July. <laughs> so That's right. I'm glad we're going to have a Sabbath for yes. those technical edits. That's right. Well, we want to uh, transition here to our uh, episode of uh, looking at Eric Riddle as a servant who uh, promotes recovery. Um, and he uh, wrote a book. Uh, called Watershed. Um, what's the subtitle again? Service in the Wake of Disaster. Service in the Wake of Disaster. Um, what was the publication date for that? That came out in December of 2010. 2010. So we're still eight years, not quite eight year anniversary of that. Yeah. Um, I obtained a copy um, in 2014. And as I mentioned on the last program. I uh, am ashamed to say I just picked it up last night to read it, but I was very pleasantly surprised. It is uh, not only a, a very thorough document of a of a time in, in history where people of Columbus, Indiana were facing something they had never faced before, um, but also a personal reflection on what one man um bravely tried to do to contribute to the recovery movement mm -hmm. as well as uh, others who yeah. worked alongside uh, him. Yeah. Um, so, Tony, I uh, have a bachelor's degree in history yes. from Indiana University. That's right. And as you might expect, people say, are you a teacher? <laughs> That's right. Or have you written your own book about history? Right. You have now. And, and I, uh, I've written a book about the history of Columbus, Indiana. That's right. In, in the year following the, the June 2008 flood. That's right. I, I'm, I'm really thankful I was able to have the time to do that. Well, it's a good book. Good record of, as you say, good historical record. Um, so, Eric, tell us a little bit about the watershed title uh, of the book and the meaning that it, um, yeah. double meaning in a way. Well, there on the very you know front of the book, I have the definition of watershed with a, a couple of different definitions. Uh, one is the area drained by a river or river system. The other is a crucial turning point affecting action. So, for me... Uh, there was a flood, and floods happen in watershed areas. So, you know, geographically speaking, that's what was going on there. And as far as a crucial turning point, I, I can definitely point to that time and say my life uh, took a big turn, and a lot of things changed after that, a lot of things for the good. Um, I had just gone through my divorce, made official in May, one month before this happened, and was at a very low point in my life. Uh, things had started to pick up uh, over the course of the beginning of 2008. Um, but of course, the divorce is very hard. And one, the most difficult thing really during that time was losing that daily contact with my children. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had more time on my hands, emotionally raw. And the, the flood recovery was a way to really... Uh, in a healthy way, channel, uh, you know, my newfound time 
as well as focus my energies on something that was a very positive thing. You mentioned watershed events, and there are at least three that you list uh, that you describe in the book. Um, uh -huh. The first is more of a series of watershed events and your mission trips. Sure. Um, growing up, uh, share a little bit about yeah. your mission trips. I, I wouldn't call mission trips necessarily watershed moments, but but they were uh, a way of preparing me for what yes, happened. Exactly. Right. So my first mission trip was through First Presbyterian Church here in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, it was a youth mission trip between my junior and senior year in high school. We went to Wombly, South Dakota. On the way, we stopped at the Corn Palace and Waldrug there in South Dakota, mm -hmm. went to the Badlands. Uh, we were on a Native American reservation, and uh, I can really remember that place still today. Uh, we were more or less painting the exterior of the house. But I think I counted about 20 broken down vehicles just in the yard. Um, just almost like being in a desert. Mm. You know, the, the poverty was definitely there. Mm. Uh, and I was able to form a, a relationship with uh, the father of the household. And I remember going for a walk with him and, you know, him warning me about the possibility of rattlesnakes. But, mm -hmm. you know, he'd have me covered. Uh, it was a really good time. Good. Uh, really good bonding experience with my friends also. Um, then the second trip was Jacksonville, uh, Florida. That was my senior year in college. I was a volunteer with Habitat for Humanity in college, and this was kind of the uh, final big event through that organization. I was a leader uh, taking a group of students down and Habijacks is the largest Habitat for Humanity community organization in the country. Mm -hmm. They've built an entire neighborhood mm -hmm. in Jacksonville through that organization. And so I took a group down, uh, partnered with a local, you know, very well resourced Habitat organization and, and spent a week there. Uh, awesome experience. And then uh, after... Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and the, and the coast, uh, Asbury United Methodist Church, where I was going, uh, had a mission trip. Uh, I was also a uh, youth leader at the time, and so it was a youth mission trip. So it was kind of like what I had done as a mm -hmm. you know, junior, senior in high school now, leading a group of young people. That was very emotional. Um, just a devastated area being down there, you mm -hmm. know, within a year of, of Katrina. We were in Gulfport, Mississippi. Yeah. And the first year, um, I created a series of devotionals based on the mm -hmm. book of Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. uh, Nehemiah is the story of Jerusalem being rebuilt after an exile to Babylon, right? Mm -hmm. And rebuilding this home uh, was ju was just a very emotional thing for the family. There was actually a rainbow the final day we were there. We, we roofed the house. It was a, it was a tremendous experience. And um, I had a, a quote from Nehemiah on the last day that said, uh, Nehemiah 10.39, we promise not to neglect the temple of our God. 
and I, I thought that was just such a subtle thing, a promise not to neglect, because in the life of the, you know, Jewish people, uh, that would happen from time to time, and, and just a promise to neglect almost seemed like kind of a low bar. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, let's like keep going to church and, and, and keep things going, not, not forget the importance of corporate church. And work. you wrote later, I wanted to remind myself and others that while it is easy to have faith after a week of mission work, it is also easy to neglect God after coming back into the routine of daily living. Absolutely. Yes. You know, you, you have, uh, it is a watershed type moment, right? When you're on a mission trip and you're reading devotionals every day. You're, you're worshiping, singing songs with other church groups, and you're doing something that's very obviously like uh, for other people, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but daily life isn't quite that um, explicitly service-oriented or, mm-hmm. you know, what you might call like sacrificial giving. Yeah. Um, and, and so those watershed moments or those like what they call like mountaintop experiences sometimes right. in, in church talk. Um, you come back from the mountain and and get back to normal life, and that, that's when you mm-hmm. can neglect the church. And I really, at that point in time, wanted to step up and say, you know, what's going on here isn't just for the time being, for this week. Right. We need to keep going and find ways to serve the church, you know. And working in flood recovery in Katrina certainly prepared you for the flood recovery you did in Columbus. And there were also two other events that... Uh, freed up your time that helped you respond to your calling. Well, you yeah, I, I respond. I, I talked about the divorce, mm-hmm. right? The That kind of transpired in the year preceding uh, the flood. And wrapped up in that was I had started a full-time MBA program. Uh, I was commuting about an hour from here to Bloomington, going to IU. Um, and that was part of what led me into a very deep depression, a, a period of insomnia that was really um, the, the worst um, experience of my life, mm. uh, you know, symptomatic um, depression, su- suicidal ideation. Um, those, those drives back and forth to Bloomington were were somewhat dangerous just because of the sleep, sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had left the program after the first semester and uh, tried to recover my relationship but it just it didn't happen so uh yeah uh those two things set the the table for being able to serve after the flood and you have a great quote i'd like you to read about that those uh ways that god prepared you for this calling would you read that piece this is from the first chapter right Mm -hmm. yeah first day yep Oh, this was actually a, a reflection on what was going through my mind when I first saw the floodwaters. Exactly. Yeah. So before I stepped into the van, I felt an overwhelming sense that God gave me a mission to help Columbus recover from this flood. The previous year washed over my mind. I understood why I walked away from the MBA program and opened the door to work at the hospital. At the hospital, I discovered my passion to serve others. As I stood at the edge of the waters running down 25th Street, I was sensitive to the the historical magnitude of this disaster. My recent divorce left me uniquely positioned to commit to being a full-time volunteer in the work that would follow. The talents for missionary and service work 
would be useful in the coming months. My Mississippi mission trips gave me enough experience to feel comfortable dealing with the aftermath of a disaster. The revelation to dedicate my life to the flood recovery effort was more logical than it was mystical. It's a beautiful line that, uh, and I think that's how God's calling often works. It's, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's not uh, a shining light that uh, knocks us off a horse like the Apostle Paul. Right. It's just simply a series of life events that mm-hmm. add up to make sense. Yeah. So I, I mentioned there, I was working at the hospital. So I, I had left the MBA program and within about a month got a job at the hospital full time. And then this is Columbus Regional Health, uh, which was one of the major places flooded. Uh, they pretty much had to put all employees to work doing things outside their normal scope. And so I was put in a position to be a case manager uh, working out of the United Way full time. Mm-hmm. So it was because of that uh, appointment, basically, the United Way, that I was really able to have the experience and exposure to the daily work of flood recovery for families. Yeah. yeah. Now, on this first day, as you see the floodwaters, you're feeling this urgency to, to serve. Um, at the same time, you, you are prepared from your, um, dis, you know, recovery in, in yeah. Katrina, but it's so early that there's not a command structure in place to to be able to know how you can best serve right um and then you mentioned and tell me the name of the person but they they kind of say to you you know help help those who are caring for others that was the night of the flood at Northside middle school from a red cross leader who had come to town and they said the people i should be serving are those who are already serving like give bottles of water to the people who've come to volunteer, not just the people who are here to spend the night. Uh, Because it's those who are serving often who forget and neglect um, their own needs, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was a lesson for me because I can sometimes be a person who, in in helping others, kind of forgets what what I need to be doing for myself. Mm -hmm. That that was a big lesson in self-care. Yeah. Yeah. And you very quickly took that lesson to heart. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, you mentioned your children. I, I have come to know you as a man who is very devoted to his children. And uh, I, I know that that has been the case as you have been a father. Yeah. Um, but I'd like you to read kind of what happened this, this, this weekend after the flood where you're really thrust into this very intensive service if you would read uh, there yeah uh, yeah yeah so th- this is the next day the flood happened on a saturday this was a sunday um after waking up uh, so after serving breakfast i picked up the children the remainder of sunday was dedicated to relaxation the children and i enjoyed a beautiful sunday together spending much of the time at a neighbor's pool. That was actually Marie Henning's pool. Okay, <laughs> who, we, cool. who we interviewed. Yeah, Marie. Thank you, Marie. Yes. As a younger father, I wouldn't have dreamed of splashing in a pool the day after a devastating disaster. I would have made myself busy, not out of a state, not out of a sense of purpose, but out of a sense of guilt. Now, however, sympathy for the situation did not mean I needed to put the joy of life on hold. That's a profound realization for all of us, really, to to carry with us. Uh, 
I think too often we are uh, thrust into action for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, and we don't examine our motives and see that, you know, our calling really is uh, where, um, you know, our passion and our need, the world's need meets, but we can't serve the world's need until, right. until we serve our own. Yeah. I mean, I could have made a choice. Yeah. I could have made a choice there to, to go and serve and be with the Red Cross running around and neglected my kids. You know, right. I'm sure my parents would have allowed me to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes service to others can neglect the most important relationships. And that, that's mm -hmm. a balance that uh, I really started to learn more after the flood. Because mm -hmm. the need was ever-present. Yeah. It, it was nonstop. The, the year... Uh, after the flood, that's the time span of the book. The book ends the day right. of the, the one-year anniversary. And we'll get to this at the end of the interview, but it's in many ways still going on, the work that began with the flood recovery. Yeah. Um, so I want to transition to the spiritual side of this. Um, early, perhaps that same evening, uh, or the next, um, you have a visit from the Billy Graham Rapid Response Team, and they talk about a, a, a proper spiritual and emotional care for flood survivors. And you write this, How often did I help someone because I felt led by the Holy Spirit, yet never mention the Holy Spirit to those I serve? How has this realization impacted your ministry? Right. So that's a great question, Tony. And I, I think it's um, a, a question all Christians ask themselves, how, how often to have an explicit uh, recognition of the work of Christ and, you know, the, and the motivation of the Holy Spirit in the things you do. Um, I, I tend to do that within the context of the church environment, uh, I, I, I will speak of, of Christ uh, in, in work environments some, um, but I, I normally keep that outside of work. You know, inside a family, of course, I talk about uh, Christ and the work of church, uh, the work of the church throughout my life. But um, uh, Yeah, I found in this book, for instance, you... You don't, you aren't ashamed of Christ, but you are more um, viewing Christ in the details of service. Uh huh. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I. I love to act uh, in service as my response to to Christ and Christ's yeah. work in my life. Kind of like faith in action. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, and, and but going back to what we were just talking about before, I wouldn't allow much grace in my life. I had to be doing the faith in action to feel like I was connected um, mm -hmm. to the Spirit. And if I wasn't working, then I would not give myself the grace to really believe that I was still, you know, acting with the, the spirit motivating me. Um, mm -hmm. and that's what can lead to burnout. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, if we don't tap into the Holy Spirit by an awareness of the Spirit working in our lives, then burnout can easily come, can it? Yeah. 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 Well, I want to get to um, at least one story of families impacted by the flood. And uh, you had wanted to highlight um, a family of the Herons. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to tell this story is because it, it is related to the flood anniversary we've talked about on the show a couple of times this summer. Um, Babe and Jean Heron live in a neighborhood called Pleasant Grove in Columbus. It is um, in an area that was hit the hardest during the flood. The area is kind of like a water basin, and their home is on the hill leading down to the, the bottom of this area. And so their neighbors just uh, north of them uh, could not stay in their homes at all. They, they were flooded beyond the first floor. Uh, so the Herons were really kind of on the cusp of do they want to stay or do they want to go? And go means their house would be turned down and turned into green space. No one else would ever live there. Um, they chose to stay. Uh, Babe Heron, the husband, grew up in that neighborhood, and he, he wanted to go through and work with FEMA uh, and work with the United Way. And so I was the case manager for the Heron family and uh, helped get them the funding, get the volunteers, uh, get the materials, all that it took to, to rebuild their home. And that took probably about four months to do. And I've maintained a relationship with them, and they've really helped guide uh, the development of the plan to take all the rest of those, you know, the homes that were then turned into green, green mm -hmm. space, the people who decide the to... The bottom lands, yeah, so to right. speak. Um, they have been instrumental in helping get this to a place where we can turn that into a park. Mm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it's a really beautiful thing, and they're a wonderful family. Their attitude was always so good. Uh, their appreciation and gratitude was constant. Mm. And, you know, they're there to this day. Ten mm -hmm. years later, I, I stop by sometimes mm -hmm. while I'm biking to work and say hi. Um Babe was on the news. Yes, when we when we were uh, CBS News. Yeah, plan, planning that flood event back on June. Yeah, June it was really a, a a celebration. You know, I not having lived here ten years ago and not having gone through the flood, it's hard for me to appreciate the new life that has sprung from this death dealing. Yeah. Uh, flood waters, but um, it must be very close to your heart and someone like Babe to, and his wife. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so what have you developed in your faith? How has this impacted your faith to to work towards recovery, to serve towards recovery? How has this impacted your faith? Okay, so. I'd like to talk a little bit about watershed philanthropy. Yeah. I started this about two years ago. And 
I, I went back to school and got my MBA. I had a focus in social entrepreneurship. When I graduated, I got into grant writing with the main focus of that writing on youth substance use prevention. So I was working here in Columbus uh, as a community coordinator and grant writer and helped get a lot of funding for our local uh, foundation for youth and uh, get a lot of different sectors of the community together to recognize that we we do have an issue and we can collectively make an impact and so formed a thing called communities that care uh that was a a really good time in my life uh, but it was grant funded and I, I decided it was time to step away from that and get into a job that would actually have some insurance and mm -hmm. steady your pay mm -hmm. and not uh always waiting on the next grant to, mm -hmm. to hopefully keep the job going. So I decided to create Watershed Philanthropy as almost like a personal mission, not necessarily as an organization or a money-making entity, but more like something I can put on a business card and potentially help people write grants and that sort of thing in the future. Mm -hmm. But the, the philanthropy really isn't so much about money philanthropy um, what it is is a recognition of how really the watershed moment after that flood uh, led me to understand how to better love people so philanthropy mm -hmm. more in what I think is probably the, the Greek word of love of mankind mm -hmm. uh, my personal mission and service now is to uh, always act out of love towards people and th through that expression of love um, help others maybe have a, a watershed moment in their life mm -hmm. um, and and I mean for me personally I, I think a watershed moment for a Christian is when they really um, understand the call to have an unconditional love for others. Mm. And that, that is, you know, my prayer, the most foundational part of my faith is that Christ was an unconditional lover. And mm -hmm. I want to use that as a model for my own life and ministry and, um, help others have that watershed moment, you know, and for some, uh, the biggest watershed moment, you know, as it should be is coming to know Christ and, right. and know him as the, the great reconciler, the great lover of humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Anything else you want to share about, um, watershed moments in, in your life, uh, maybe anticipated watershed moments. What do you see in the coming years that you anticipate could could be a, a, a big uh, transition well, for you. you know I I think part of a, a lot of watershed moments is you don't necessarily see them coming uh-huh right like the I would have never predicted the flood right you know of course not right um, but it's more of being ready and prepared you know as we said uh -huh. at the beginning of this uh, the things that were orchestrated in my life whether 
you know, I perceive them as for good or ill, you mm-hmm. know, the flood, leaving the MBA program, all those things help prepare me for that moment in time, mm-hmm. that watershed moment. So, uh, you we, know, you know, the groundwork we're laying with uh, mental health ministry, yes, you know, yes. you never know where that's going to go. No, you don't. And to see, I mean, it was 2014 when we began just meeting, praying for a year. Right. Um, the next year, faithful friends. The next year, you and the other leaders kept that going while I went away. Mm-hmm. Now, the podcast, we're just coming up on a year's anniversary since we had that walk and right. conceived it. So That's right. You know. So another thing I would say is, you know, when you think of like a, a miracle, you know, biblically speaking, it's sometimes you've got this threshold of like the waters have to part, mm. you know, the blind have to be restored to sight. That's a miracle. Well, uh, you know, maybe a watershed moment's kind of the same thing. It's only during a flood that a watershed happens. Uh, well, something I've learned and Keith Weedman has actually helped me quite a bit mm-hmm. in this, you know, Keith, um, the way we frame our experiences is really important. You know, two people could have pretty much the same experience and one person could uh, become bitter and apathetic. Uh, someone else could be inspired and um, motivated to change. So I think that's another part of loving people is, is helping them reframe their experiences to understand that there are many different ways to interpret life. Uh, there's many different ways to interpret a mental health diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so watershed moments can even be as small as reframing something that we think is tragic. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's um, one thing that I will say to you, and this circles back to something I said earlier, that you know you have inspired me as a father to share you know, some of my watershed moments with my children. Mm. And I certainly pray for them that they will be prepared for whatever unexpected things the Holy Spirit might bring down their paths. Mm -hmm. And I think you do a good job with your children. Um, They get to see your faith in action. They join in that Neela helped to bake the service berry muffins that <laughs> we served at the anniversary. Isaac was planting trees, yeah. and I I think he may have been picking the berries as well, or was that Neela handled Neela the berries. handled the berries? Okay, six, six cups of service berries. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they get very involved in the community, and they just come back from mission trips, right? Neela, this break we took this afternoon, I went to get her. She had a week-long mission trip uh, without her mobile phone. (laughs) (laughs) So she can stay focused. She had a really good time. She was smiling. She gave me a big hug. Good. She she got out of the van here. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I dedicated the book to the children. Yeah, to Neil and Isaac. And the last page of that book is me pushing them in, in the swings at Millrace Park right after they had a, a com- commemoration of the flood. Uh, so um, definitely 
helping them see how to serve is very important to me as a father. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I have one other thing to say. I can't remember right now. Oh, I wanted to say this. So about two or three days after the flood, uh, someone called my parents and said, we think your son is manic. Oh. And you may want to restrict his service a bit. Oh. And I had a conversation with my parents, and they trusted me and and trusted. That's great. Uh, what I was doing. Yeah. And I really thank them for that because if I had been weaker, um, I may have said, you know, you're right. I I need to step away from this. Other people can handle it. But my parents gave me the confidence to lean in, to continue to serve, and it made a big difference. And so Mm -hmm. I guess that's a lesson in... You know, with the label of bipolar, it's almost like when you become too excited about something mm-hmm. and, and get really involved, people might think that's a problem. Yeah. You know, and I encourage people to, when they know they're in service, to have those people they trust the most. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a pastor, you know, to, to monitor their behavior but certainly when you're caught up in a, a passionate time in your life, don't tell yourself you can't do it because you're just mm-hmm. crazy or whatever. I mean, that's not the case at all. Um, and, you know, part of what yeah. you did as a servant, you promoted your own recovery. Um, Absolutely. And if, you sta- if we stand back out of fear and cowardice, then we're never going to get better. We're, right. we're never going. We're we're going to isolate. We're going to distrust ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I'm really happy your parents did that. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, a prayer I I say most mornings is God give me the grace to accept the things that I can give, and the gratitude to to accept those things that I receive. And that, that grace is really important for me because, again, it goes back to uh, service is very important and giving is very important. But at times you're not giving are often the times where you need to give yourself the grace to say that's okay. Yep. And maybe it is a time to rest, relax, just not do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, buddy. Well, now that we've done our recording marathon here, we can look forward to uh, July of vacation time yeah. and family time. We've already mentioned that a little on the previous episode, but uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Let's do it. Loving Father, we thank you for the blessedness of this day, for what you accomplish in us and through us and within us. I pray, Lord, for Eric, that he continue to serve toward recovery, not only his own, but for the community and the world. I'm grateful for his love and service to his children and pray that 
by loving his family, he would be an example for others in loving Christ and, and loving each other. Lord, thank you for Tony and for the ability to, to share my story a bit. Uh, thank you for all those tough experiences that you have uh, walked with me through. And um, Lord, help me to be someone who can walk with others when they are exper experiencing difficulties. Lord, I pray that this podcast can reach out to people and encourage them and let them know that uh, they are uh, folks who can serve and be of value to others and can exhibit the love of Christ uh, regardless of their diagnosis or uh, the tougher experiences they've had in life. Lord, uh, I, I thank you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com.